Jazz. <laughs> well, how are we doing? Is it is it time? Yeah, let's do it. So I think this is Pat, and I think this is Jazz Bastard Podcast. Hold on, 284. I'm pretty sure it's 284. Wow. And who are you, sir? Uh, I'm I'm Mike. I can't believe it's 284 of these things. That's I, a lot. I can, and it, what that means, people, is I. I constantly, I'm, recently I've been losing track of numbers. I think the numbers are correct on this, on the, on the version from last once, but I, I misnumbered it on my document. So we have one more podcast and then it will be our 11th anniversary. Oh. Which means, uh, people, if you have, if we're, if we're gonna, are we gonna do the 11 ensemble thing? The 11 yeah. people in a group but, thing? I thought I had one. I meant, I thought last year I had set one aside. I forgot. And now okay. I don't remember what it was. So. <laughs> So we'll have to look. But anyway, listeners, if you can think of an album featuring an ensemble of 11 musicians that is jazz or jazz adjacent, let us know. Shoot us <laughs> a line at pat at jazzbastard.com or mike at jazzbastard.com. Please carve in us both. And uh, we'll take a look at that because uh, a month or so from now, we're going to do our 11th anniversary. And it'll be in the middle of this project that, uh, that Mike uh, thought we should do, which is basically we're looking at the next few episodes – the New York Times top 10 best jazz albums of 2023. Is that correct? Yeah. And we do this from time to time. We've done this before. Oh yeah, for sure. And, uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a thing that we've gotten up to. Yeah. So this particular time, for whatever reason, I just, New York Times had a listing of the top 10 and I hadn't heard of most, um, yeah, I hadn't heard of most of them. I think I'd heard of one or two of them. So I was like, all right, we should probably give this a, a look-see, a listen-to, since this is what one of the cultural touchstones of our nation seems to think we all ought to be listening to. So that was the idea. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to call this series of episodes, It's Never the Final Countdown, because, yeah, as humans, until the atomic bombs come for us, we love to make lists and, and you know, and it's a way of kind of assessing what happened the previous year. Yeah. The, these names are largely unfamiliar to me. Of course, part of it is that one of them is Christian Scott changed his name. So, <laughs> I, you know, it's like I, I'd heard of Christian Scott, the trumpet player, but now he's chief Zian or something. So that didn't ring a bell. And most of these, yeah, they are new, which is good, right? We're, we're running into some. Artists that we are not familiar with. You want to talk about uh, this episode selections? We're going to do three from the list and then one bonus. What what, what are we doing today? Yeah, but since ten doesn't divide evenly into podcasts, we're going to do three, three, and then I don't know four or two and two, depending on yeah. what we get. Old. Anyway, uh, so uh, the uh, the three for this week would be uh, Jamie Branch's "Fly or Die, Fly or Die, Fly or Die World War." <laughs> The titles on her albums, uh, they always involve the word fly or die and then lots of permutations. So, uh, Jamie Branch's album and then, um, Casa Overall, his album Animals. And then a new player that I'm very glad to have kind of found. Great name. Zoe, Z-O-H, Amba. Zoe, Amba. That's just a great name. I mean, what a great name. You'll never be, there's never going to be another Zoe, right? I mean, it's not Zoe, it's There Zoe. will never be another Zoe, I hope. 
I, I suppose I might be mispronouncing. It might be Zod. It could be Zod. Anyway, it looks like Zoe to me. If I'm mispronouncing that, it's the great and powerful Zoe. The great and powerful. So Zoe Amba, just a great, great name. Uh, the Flower School by Zoe Amba. Um, so those are our three from the New York Times list. And then we threw out an album uh, that we got as a review also from last year, but not on a top 10 list, although reasonably well liked in various parts. Lafayette Gilchrist's Undaunted. So Dems are four albums. I guess they're all last year. So yep, all 2023. Uh, Jamie Branch's album is on International Anthem. Casa Overall's album is on Warp. Zoamba's album is on Palalalia Records. Uh, I'm just it's taking a shot there. And then uh, Lafayette Gilchrist is on Morpheus Records. Uh, I don't know what color pill that means he's taken. Does that mean he's taking the red pill or the uh, blue pill? Yeah, red, uh, sure. wait, red pill. I always get it wrong. Is red pill? I think if red, red is real and blue did- is the one I want to take. It's the it's pill of illusions. Right. I, just give me a whole handful of those. Red pill someone, you you open their eyes to the world. There I you always, go. You know, teaching. I'm literally teaching that film next week, and I can never remember which <laughs> which fucking bill it is. <laughs> I know. It's like I've, I've probably um, I probably have been wrong pilled, and so I can't remember. That's why. There you go. Anyway, just using your body is a giant battery. Okay, so I do you have a preference as to where we start here? Nope, you can go wherever you want. I'm interested in hearing you rant about one or more of these. So, uh, okay. Cause I figure you're going to rant some. Put my rant and shoes on here. Let's start with Mr. Overall, Casa. Okay. Animals 2023. This is in the top 10 list of jazz albums. Why? <laughs> Why is that? Pat's going to get very angry, Pat. <laughs> put, on your, put, on, put on your get off my lawn pants. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Get off my lawn, youngster. So uh, Castle was born in 1982. He's a drummer. And, yes. you know, I listened. The New York Times is a music podcast, which I listen to from time to time. I got through about a half of their podcast. It basically was the guy that doesn't really give a shit about jazz, interviewing a couple other writers on the paper, and they're basically bringing up these albums, right? They're, they're what they liked from the last year. I made it through about half. I <laughs> There's just something a little bit too precious in East Coast about that podcast for me sometimes. We'll talk a little bit about Animals. What kind of record is it? Why do you think it got on this list? Why is it on my lawn? Why won't it leave my lawn? What's going on? Well, so partly it's on the list because... It's the New York Times, and 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 Casa has been is the flavor of the month, and and has gotten a lot of press and attention out that way, right? So people who who know like him. What's interesting is so we, we talked about this a little bit with um, Matt Phillips. We were talking about fusion, or I raised the issue that rap or hip hop or rap hip hop adjacent forms are the new fusion for jazz right so back in the 70s it was rock jazz fusion 
And that was the kind of thing that made Stanley Crouch and Wynton Marsalis get their knickers in a bunch. The new jazz fusion is with um, hip-hop and and rap or hip-hop rap adjacent forms, right? So the idea is presumably those forms have a certain amount of cultural cachet. They have a built-in kind of marketability. And by linking or creating jazz hybrid musical forms with those genres, you can bring taste to the masses and masses to taste. I take it it's just a modern version of fusion. Well, I think with a crucial thing, just to interrupt for a second, most, but not all fusion, fused rock instruments with jazz instruments in an instrumental or largely instrumental art, right? In other words, they didn't bring a guy with a cucumber down his pants singing. Now, they're, you know, if you look like Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you look at Chicago, there you're kind of seeing, you know, there's still vocals, there's still guitar solos, and there's some jazz elements. But if, if you think of the classic fusion bands, for the most part, towards the very end, Weather Report, you know, was sticking a couple of vocals, which people reacted to very badly. But for the most part, you know, Weather Report, Return to Forever, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Lori Coriel, whatever. They they didn't bring in the vocalists. They brought in elements of rock rhythms and instruments, but it, they, it remained in instrumental music. And here, largely, there's a lot of various kinds of vocals, right? I mean, I, that to me is one factor that seems to tilt this another way. Just just to bring that up, it is a fusion. I'm just saying that it seems like it's more beholden to rap as a music because there's so much rapping on it. Just Although I would counter that slightly, which with, with the fact that some of the the vocals that they bring up here are people who are within. So maybe this is Cassis innovation are, are people who are regarded as edgy and on the on the cusp themselves. Right. So, for example, the third track here, Clock Ticking. How'd you like that one, by the way? We blow that strong. You stuff on the streets like I ain't got no hot. Get it on to the break of dawn. Clock ticking. We ain't got long. Clock clicking. We blow that strong. You stuff on the streets like I ain't had no hot. Get it on to the break of dawn. In my day, if I had a nigga haze, didn't complain. Same match fitted with a little different slang. It was yay. Sprinkled in the city, made a fish relate. That one features. My note is that Clock Ticking asks a crucial question. What words rhyme? <laughs> clock Ticking features Danny Brown, who is a much lauded. What, I, I, I don't I am not always sure if I should say rap or hip hop. In any event, Danny Brown is I have several of his albums and and he's known for being a kind of edgy avant garde type who's interested in sonic distortion and. His voice is really an acquired taste. He sounds a little bit like early Beastie Boys, kind of, you know, for, for those of us out there who are aware of those people. So anyway, so Casa isn't exactly picking the, the people who are the mainstream, right? He's already picking people who are, I think, arguably outside the mainstream. So they're not exactly, you know, he's not, he doesn't have like, you know, Jay-Z on here, right? He's got, People who are out there or edgy in some cases who who don't have their own releases yet, you know, these are the people he's he's picking up to have two vocals uh, on his album, uh, you know. So and and the people who he does pick up are themselves genre 
crossers in their own right, right? So Laura Mvula, I don't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She really does like, she's all over the place. She does kind of art poppy stuff and, and contemporary R&B. Like she herself is a kind of mixed genre person who's played with the Metropole Orchest, you know? So it's like the people that Casa is choosing here are people who are already kind of into hybrid forms, right? And then he picks up a couple of jazz players who also embody this kind of willingness to cross genres or to embrace to embrace other stuff. So Theo Croker, principally, but also someone who Casa has collaborated with before, Vijay Iyer on piano, right? So it's like he's got some people from the jazz world who are comfortable with doing this kind of thing. Yeah. So my my take here is that you know this is I guess the new the new fusion the new jazz. I've, I've listened to, I went, I went and dipped into some of Cass's older stuff. So, you know, he's a, he's a drummer with, you know, Jazz Bonafides who played with, worked with, um, Jerry Allen. So I listened to a really interesting live Jerry Allen date, which is straight ahead jazz, right? Or traditional, more traditional jazz, right? And he can do that, right? He's played with Terry Lynn Carrington. He's played with, you know, he's played with all kinds of, of folks, but he also is this guy who, who wants to cross over or has crossed over, is willing to kind of do that, that sort of work. So I guess uh, what, what gets my knickers in a bunch about the, um, the New York Timies is this doesn't feel very much like like jazz to me overall it feels <laughs> it feels more like pun pun not intended there yes, yeah yeah it's more hip-hop with jazz tones not jazz with hip-hop tones jazz with hip-hop tones would be robert glasper so if, if, if you're gonna put a this is you know i'm painting with very broad strokes here but if you're gonna put a foot in each camp but lean in one direction or the other this leans more toward this is a pop album. I'm making a pop album or I'm making an album that's going to, that the kids are going to play that has some jazz elements in it. The previous album that he did, I got that one and listened to it. I think I'm good. That's from 2020. And uh, that features more jazz folks and fewer, fewer of the collaborations with the hip hop community. Right. So on that one, VJ Iyer, Aaron Parks, Sullivan Fortner, he likes the piano, piano player. And then he also has Theo Croker and Joel Ross on that. Right. Mm. So that one is that feels. And, and when I listen to that, I'm like, all right, you can call this new and you jazz if you want but this is this is close enough to jazz for me this is less close to jazz this is feels more like a kind of it's 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 something else with jazz overtones and i get that you know the experimental nature of it probably just you know made critics toes curl in ecstasy <laughs> um, but it doesn't make my ears curl in ecstasy of the four things we listened to this week this was the one that appealed to me sonically the least. And you know that I try to dig into better regarded hip hop and I try and, you know, broaden my ears and listen to a fair amount of stuff. And, and this felt like a fair amount of studio, you know, there's a lot of auto tune. There's a, there's a fair amount of, you know, processed digital sounds. Can you still see me? 
And I, I just, it, um, you know, I'm, I'm not against that. There's plenty of jazz that does that, but this, for whatever reason, this didn't catch my ears. See, I am against auto tune. I just think auto tune <laughs> is never good, I, I, except share. But I, for the most part, when I hear that, I'm just thinking creativity is just because it's so cliche, it's so incredible. And I just maybe it's just because of my age, but I don't, I don't see the expressive potential in it for the most part. I feel like it's a crutch. And again, maybe it's just generational. Because I mean, you know, I, I've, I've listened to studio altered vocals my whole life. I mean, most pop productions are not, you know, a simple capturing of the audio event, Lord knows. But this particular one, I've just always felt sucks. And that's just a subjective judgment. But yeah, I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with you. This is a creative, interesting, slightly challenging rap project or hip hop project. I'm not, you know, able to speak on it and the guy with a weird voice you know he reminds me a little bit of the guy from um whoever did word up that funk group you know that they can yeah 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 you know it's it's okay fine i, I don't mind a nasal voice i've got a nasal voice wait till you sake. hear album after album of that voice <laughs> well that may never happen <laughs> uh too busy but yeah it, it's it, it's just one song so i mean but but i mean yeah, as, as i listen to it i'm, I'm with you it, it sounds like a a pop i mean i in a, in a broader sense Okay, if we just want to have a big umbrella for all sorts of music that have words, that have studio production, that's trying to be relatively accessible, let's just call it pop. You know, and this is obviously with, it's got rap elements, it it may be harder hitting than some or whatever, it might be quite different from say the Go-Go's, but you know, it's popular music. It, It was popular music with some interesting little tidbits of jazz and little production tricks, which is kind of another thing, I don't know... I don't know where you stand on it. I mean, I think years years ago, probably at this point, we talked about Lenny Tristano and how he did on one of his records in Atlantic. He sped up the tape for a musical effect, and people were so upset because at that point, and I think largely still now, we think of jazz recordings as capturing a talented practice musician spontaneously performing something and showing off his or her technique an ability to produce in real time, you know, musical expression, right? I mean, that's part of kind of the package we're looking for, as I say, we in a general sense of listeners of jazz. And, you know, when you start manipulating things, altering the sounds, looping the sounds, that can be perfectly good aesthetic choices in in many kinds of pop production or whatever. But if I'm putting this in, you know, maybe this is somewhat about gatekeeping or just, I mean, I... I'm talking a second about genre. It's not what I think of as jazz musicians doing. It's not what their special superpower is, right? It, their superpower isn't having a really good producer. You know, their superpower is being able to produce. And I'm sure these guys can produce. I mean, I'm sure these guys can play. I, I know that Vigiero can play. Um, did I just butcher his name? What, say his name again, would you? Uh, Vigiero. I think it's less pronounced ear. Ear. Yeah. Thank you. I just, I'm god awful. I, you know, we've heard him. We've listened to his records, maybe because of his grounding. You know, he's never, I've never got that much deep pleasure from his playing, but I certainly respect it. So I'm, it's not like these guys, I'm sure this fellow's a fine drummer. But this kind of production is about, you know, using various techniques to enhance the music, create the music. It's not capturing someone performing it in a kind of one-to-one way. And that, again, I mean, I listen to all sorts of records. I've got Led Zeppelin records. The farthest thing from their mind was, you know, capturing 
the sound of just musicians by them. You know, this has gone on ever since pretty much magnetic tape. It's just that to me, I put that in a little bit different basket than I put in jazz. And I, I do think, you know, we could call this gatekeeping or call this conservatism. And I get that. But to me, I mean, really, it's literally if you're someone who's listening to music, you know, genres weren't invented solely out of critics hang ups. It's a way of letting a listener know what is the contract between the musician and the audience, very roughly speaking. What in general do we kind of expect to happen? And the general contract I tend to think of when I'm looking for jazz, quote unquote, is most of the time it's instrumental and most of the time it's closer to a recording of the acoustic event. Even if that acoustic event is electronic instruments being played, it's, you know, it's more or less, quote unquote, live in the studio or live live. And it's about musicians showing what they can do in real time, both in terms of making up what they're playing and just executing it. It's not about layering loops, auto-tuning, you know, studio trickery. And again, when I say trickery, this is not like saying that's bad. I love studio trickery. I love records that do this. I just don't put them in that basket. That's not, you know, I'm looking for something different. If I pull out Elvis Costello or I pull out, you know, King Crimson or whatever, whatever white boy music I listen to. You know, I, I realize that's not, and maybe King Crimson is not a great example because they do a lot of the live stuff, but, you know, I, I, I'm just looking for something different in, in pop productions than I am in jazz. So, yeah, I mean, this, this seemed kind of arbitrary or like they're trying to be hip. Apple verse for your losses, but they could never be dead. Silly ghosts play in my head now. They know the lava is calm But the summer is hot Well, you know, uh, I, I too, I, I'm leery of getting into the, the gatekeeping thing because 20 years from now, maybe people are going to look back and go, ah, yes, this was the cutting edge in the same way that we look back fondly on fusion right i mean some people will never look back fondly right yeah that's the case but But i do i don't have a problem with it so you know maybe someday someone will look back on this but i can say that for me this didn't produce enormous amounts of sonic pleasure it didn't hurt i didn't intensely dislike it but like i said it felt like a pop album with jazz trappings not a jazz album with pop trappings and his previous album was a little more jazzy than this. Okay, because he's so, new to me. Yeah, I, this is my first cast up. All this yeah. jazz albums of the year to me feels, I, I, I just feel like it's a category error on their part. I disagree. It might have been a wonderful album, but to me, it doesn't feel like the other things we're going to talk about, those feel like jazz to me. This doesn't as much. So, okay. yeah, I absolutely on board with that. Yeah. And Casa is clearly a talented dude. And he can play lots of genres because he can play it straight ahead and he can do the mixed stuff. But, you know, this one at least just didn't appeal to me that much. Um, I didn't hate it. It just didn't it didn't grab me. Whereas both Lafayette Gilchrist and uh, Jamie Branch, they have some earworms. They have some things that kind of dig in. Maybe it's just at this point I'm, you know, susceptible to Jamie Branch. But, you know, they have things that I'm like, okay, this is not. This isn't your straight ahead hip hop from 1955, but I'm in, I'm down, you know, with this, I, it just didn't, I didn't right. connect yeah, strongly. I would absolutely agree. Yeah. It's, it's for me, the weakest of the selections, but you know, in terms of rating it as a hip hop album, 
I'm just not I'm just not equipped. I haven't listened yeah, to enough no, examples and of the nor am I, you know, I, I just, But I mean as a pop album, I've it was fine. But yeah, it did not did not grab me that much. Well, I was thinking of maybe going to an artist that does grab you, whether you like it or not. Uh, next, would you be okay with talking about Zoe Amba next? Yeah, let's do Zoe. And her Go album, uh, I Hate You, Patrick. Oh, I'm sorry, The Flower School. Palilia Records, uh, all these are 2023. So I had not heard of Zoe, but she is a young, born 2000, saxophone player. And in the crib, they played her Albert Eiler, and this is what we get. And then so she's playing with Chris Corsano on drums. He was born in 1975. And Bill Orcutt on guitar, and he was born in 1962. So this is a cross-generational group uh, led by a very young musician who's apparently also very prolific and released like several albums last year. Have you heard other Zoe? Uh, I have, but only because of getting this, I'm like, I need to find more Zoe. And so I did. Um, the other Zoe that I found is something called the O Sun. And O Sun is, uh, might be more your speed, I'm thinking. O Sun is a little less, it's a little less, in the exotic John Zorn ambit and a little more mellow in some places with a title like, Oh son, how could it not be? She's got a whole series of albums uh, with those kinds of titles. So Oh son was followed by Oh life. Oh light volume one, then Oh life. Oh light volume two. She's got something um, with uh, Francisco Mela called causa y efecto. And there's a couple volumes of that. I mean, so Young but prolific. There's churning out quite a bit of stuff. But yeah, this this I guess is uh she got this date on the strength of acquaintance with John Zorn at some level, right? I don't know her full biography or whatever, but um Yeah, I go ahead. I dipped into it. Apparently she's coming from a very spiritual place. Yes. So, you know, a quester as someone like Albert Eiler was. I would also Mention John Coltrane. I would say he's a spirit. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, I guess of the two of them, I, I associate her more with Eiler and that, you know, maybe she can run the changes. I don't, you know, I, I, I just don't know. I, I've not heard of the things, but I mean, it, one thing about her that I think was mentioned as some other musicians were talking about working with her is that whereas you might think about uh, out musicians as building up to this crescendo, this scream, that's just sort of sometimes in a given performance. I mean, there are a couple quieter songs on this rather short record. She'll just start in at, at level 11, right? I mean, it's just immediate off the jump. Here we are. <laughs> we're, you know, we're in, in altissimo overtone uh, speaking in tongues land uh, right away. And so she doesn't, you know, she doesn't take time to kind of build momentum. She's just there. Uh, so you're more in this bag than I am. Yeah. So tell me about the flower school and what you liked about it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, to me, uh, uh, I felt Coltrane more than Hyler. She's, um, at least on this album, a little less 
on the, as you put it, you're running the changes mode. I mean, she's not doing that, but this felt to me deeply spiritual. Uh, very sort of deeply felt. So this doesn't, you know, remember we did that podcast a little while ago. Does jazz have a sense of humor? Oh. This is not, this is not humorous jazz. Like this is, this is serious. This is, I, I grew up listening to John Coltrane Ascension jazz, you know, that's what this is. Um, not all the stuff here is loud. I think some of the stuff is a little moonshow. Uh, sorry. Uh, the moon showed, but no you was kind of mellow. Um, it's just sort of, it can be shrill and feel atonal at times. I get the Eiler comparison. I, I get that. I can, I can hear that, but I, I feel like she has a better horn than Albert Eiler had. <laughs> Albert Probably Eiler does, yeah. Right. Yeah. It sounded to me like he was playing on a plastic alto or something. And, uh, and I feel like there's more, I feel like there's more control with her playing. It feels meditative and thoughtful, whereas Eiler sort of sometimes feels to me like he's getting into the spiritual trance and then just letting it go. And it's highly repetitive and circular, and, and it's about accumulation. And I, I feel like this is a little more through process than that. So, so yeah, I, I hold on to a phrase and repeat it. I mean, not always, but this, that's one technique she has. Cause, and again, I, you're going to make these distinctions more carefully than I am because in general, the energy school is just something I don't have energy for. Right. Unless it's kind of one of the expressive bolts you've got in your quiver and you use it to punctuate something or to create a mood in one place in a song or maybe one song in an album. If it's the majority of what you're doing, I'm just going to say, you know, back to my blanket fort. Thanks, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> so it's kind of like pulling that blanket fort down. It's like, no, I'm too old, though. Cut it out. <laughs> well, I thought this was, um, I think there are more quiet moments here than maybe you're allowing. There for, are a couple, yeah. I mean, Sweet One is really heavy on the acoustic guitar, actually. Heavy is the wrong word. It's a very light, kind of almost frothy affair compared to some of the other cuts. There are songs here that will challenge you that that are kind of, you know, in the I'm going to hurt your ears mode. But in general, I felt like this was deeply spiritual. And um, I don't know. I just like it. I think it's good. And uh, um, it, it strikes me as the work of a, of a measured, thoughtful player who is sort of willing to explore 
some of that energy music, but there's there's a kind of reserve here that I don't hear in Eiler or even in Coltrane when he really gets going. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to put this on a level with like spiritual unity yet. But yeah, Eiler is is a different. I mean, he's in just a whole different world. I guess you know it, it's. Right now, it's the energy without here. I mean, what she is not quite into yet and may do in other projects and may do later on if she hasn't done it so far in her multifarious albums is quote unquote spiritual jazz. In other words, this is not a modal based record that's meditative in his vibe. It's more, there are certainly moments of beauty and quiet. And then there's, you know, the, the album begins with absolute distorted blast of tenor saxophone. You know, you know, we're, we're at the squalling, squealing from, from second one and then after a while it does progress to other things so yeah i mean i I, i'm not gonna say this is like a bad example of this or something or that it is just one thing you know that sometimes you play phrases and i guess i'm not sure that she's hooked on to phrases that resonate with me that much so far and of course the other thing i'm not quite hearing is Eiler at least begins, and you know, obviously Coltrane begins from a bedrock of bebop and modal jazz, right? I mean, he's kind of in the part of the tradition, and then he goes into outer space. But Eiler has the marching band, the, the folk song background, and that might be here. I guess I'm not, I, I'm a little bit less signposted with her as to what I'm supposed to hang on to. But that may partially just be not being as familiar with the genre and not having spent enough time with the record. I you know, played it multiple times, but... It's not. Uh, sometimes I felt like I was going to school. I've been a bad boy. Put your hands out for the ruler. And then parts of it were gorgeous. You know, I, and it's an interesting group in that, you know, the guitar, drums, tenor don't have a bass instrument, which is actually not unknown, but, but fairly rare on this kind of energy music. I think more often what's left behind is any chordal music, any chordal instrument. Uh, but here you've got a chordal instrument, but you don't have the bass. Uh, which is harmonic but not chordal. So take I don't know that it's a bad or a good thing, but just you know it is different from a, a lot of energy trios you know that came out of that spiritual unity tradition that that were basically bass drum sax. So interesting choice there, and he's an interesting player, and you know it's these are good musicians, and there, there's certainly moments I like, but I, the proportion I guess for me didn't end up being a winning one. Uh, there's enough stuff that I felt like was kind of hard sledding that wasn't rewarding me with ear nuggets that I wasn't that enthused by. It is, it's pretty brief. And again, I, my sense is this, this person is so prolific that you really need to kind of immerse yourself in what she's doing to get some sense of what she's up to, because she's clearly comfortable with putting out a fairly brief, compact project, looking at one facet of what she likes. And it sounds to me from what you're telling me is that some of her other projects are looking at slightly different facets and maybe not as energy based. Hmm. Well, I, you know, I, I, I think I like this considerably better than you. I don't think we've given a good sense of the soundscape of it. I mean, it's most of the numbers, most of them, it's only five or six songs long, are sort of guitar and drums drone almost, sometimes building over which she's playing repeated licks or phrases. And some of them build quite a lot. Um, but there are, you know, some slower pieces. So yeah, I don't know. I, I this this just kind of worked for me. This, I I kind of like Zoe, and I I want to hear more. I want to hear more Zoe, more Zoe, please. I liked it quite a bit. I think Mozo. Uh, 
Okay. Mozo, and uh, she strikes me as based on how prolific she's been at at this age. I suspect this is someone who's gonna churn out quite a bit of music. I mean, she's got how many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. She's got nine releases in her Good name. Yeah. Two. I mean, you know, that's that's uh, it's not John Zorn level, but it's it's up there. That's a lot. And she's appeared on some other people's stuff already as well. So, yeah, I, I yeah, I'm interested. There's an album. I think it's just her on tenor. Uh, I think that's right. Is it just her? Is it a solo? No, it's not. Um, oh, that's who it is. It's got um, Tyshawn Sori on drums. Oh, OK. Yeah. Uh, and it's called Bhakti. And that's just three songs it's one of those long long I, i'm interested and so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna follow up on zoe i think this is uh I, I i think she's one to watch i like this stuff so i'm sorry you don't like it more but i suspect this is probably more likable than some of the other things she may have done i don't know okay. i'll let you, i'll let you know I'll let there you, know. you go well, and it, you know, she's living in a different time. I mean, Albert Eiler, he's kind of dependent still. And, you know, I was uh, listening to Pharaoh Sa- Sanders' album that, you know, what he did for Indian Navigation. And part of it was at that time, for the most part, musicians had to find some kind of label infrastructure to record what they were doing. You know, it, it wasn't necessarily a major label, but, you know, somebody that had access to a studio. And now it, it's, you can, if you wish... Anybody can produce multiple records with a limited amount of equipment that most people can, you know, afford to get. You don't need a studio. You don't need an expensive reel-to-reel tape deck to record it. Uh, obviously, it might sound better if you're working with a professional studio, but it's it's no longer uh, kind of the starting place. And so, yeah, it, it's cap- you know possible for somebody working in a fairly niche area of music to kind of, if they so choose. And, you know, can find the collaborators. I mean, clearly this is a musician that other people want to work with and is finding some listeners. You know, you can you can make a lot of records. So we'll see. I mean, that it's a weird thing because in some part I'll leave you to that. You know, it's like, do I want to go through eight more of these <laughs> to find out if there's one I like? It's like kind of intimidating, especially for someone so young. So it's like Zorn, you know, I don't – where do you even begin anymore? It's just like – it's just infinite. So you kind of maybe don't, it's, it's that point where choice gets so extensive, you kind of get paralyzed, but yeah, let me know. Uh, yeah, this is, I will, I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow up on this one. I'm going to keep, all keep right. You keep, you keep, you go, go with so. Yeah. You, go, so, go, 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 so, go, go. I guess that uh, her first, uh, the O son, which I was telling you about was produced by Zorn. Um, but that's, okay. that's a hell of a start. I mean, uh, to be fair, Zorn has a lot of debuts on the Zodic label. I was going to say, to be honest, who has not been at this point? (laughs) I'm sure there's a few musicians. This, I feel like, is a step above some of the other ones I've heard. So if if, uh, the Zorn finishing school is is where she got her start, I feel like she's a little more legit than some of the other things I've, I've heard from that label so yeah, he, he shoots a lot of targets anyone who plays with william parker has my vote so there you go
All right. Well, so our last selection from the New York Times list for this podcast is unfortunately Jamie Branch's last record. Jamie was a trumpet player born 1983. Is it so, the last one? They keep finding them, well, right? Well, okay, you're right. It, it probably isn't. And died 2022. And uh, this is the third in her series of albums by her Fly or Die band. She's plays trumpet as well as uh, voc- vocals, keyboard percussion, and it notes cover art. And then Lester St. Louis is on cello and also provides voice, flute, marimba, keyboard. Jason Ajamian, maybe, Ajamian, uh, double bass, electric bass, voice, marimba. And Chad Taylor, drums, timpani bells, and mar- apparently everyone is required to play marimba if they're going to be in this group. So it is at its most basic trumpet, cello, bass, drums. And this one, as a previous Fly or Die album, does include some vocals by Jamie. But I don't know. I, this one doesn't seem to me, doesn't feel like a pop album. I don't know what you thought of Fly or Die World War. What, what did you think of this one? I, you know, I, I, it's funny because I can remember when we, we first did Jamie Branch and I was like, ah, mm, uh, and then we came back to her and I was like, mm, mm, mm. and then uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Uh, there's a certain, you know, there's a certain thing. If you listen to someone long enough, you find your way into their sound world and you can pretty quickly decide if it's a sound world that, that you like, you know, if it's, it's a sound world that you want to live in, right? In recent years, I've listened to loads of Charlie Hayden, and I, I'm, it's just not my sound world. He's a great player, but it's not my thing. I just, it's not me, right? Pat Metheny or Metheny or however you say Pat's name just doesn't, I, I've never connected. I've never connected to his stuff. And, you know, he's a great player. And I've listened to that sound world and I'm like, you know, I know some of the moves in it and I just don't, doesn't work for me. But, um, Jamie Branch, I, I just somehow I'm in. I like it. Uh, I like the vocals. Um, you know, like, so on a song, to give you an example, on a song like The Mountain, right? Which is like as country, I think, as Jamie Branch could possibly ever hope to get. Waking up from my slumber to misunderstand another Though they call it terra firma, it dissolves beneath my feet Picking through a pile of garbage for some worthless piece of paper That's been hidden there for me to give some meaning to my day I have seen the information on the lighter side of dumbness I have heard a new statistic and the stomping on the ground begins slow. Somehow, I like it. You know, it's this weird kind of twangy, you know, but it begins with this sort of, you know, bass riff. And I don't, I'm just into it. I'm just into it. I like, I like her a lot. This is more like everything is sort of filtered through this sort of punk rock sensibility, I feel like, with her. And there's just something raw and unfiltered about her sound world that I, that I really like. And the other thing about this is when I have, you know, I've said it before on the podcast, I, I throw everything into a list that we're, that we're going to do for the next time. And I, I listen to everything once and then it's on a, a list, you know, next podcast. And I'll listen to that at various times during a day. And whenever one of her songs came up in like one bar, and it was her. Like, oh, oh, yeah, oh, this is sure. Jamie. Yeah. Just, oh, yeah. this is Jamie. It's just instantly, it's something distinctive. And, uh, 
and, and just something hooky. I'm just, I'm pulled into her sound world. I don't know what it is. And I know that the first time I listened to her, it didn't happen. But then, you know, with each subsequent release, I'm just a little more all in on, on Jamie. And this time there was like almost no, there was almost no like warm up time. I was just like, Oh yeah, I like this just almost immediately. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I it's hard to explain. I, I find it hard to kind of, you know, find the right vocabulary or, or how to characterize her. Like, so that song that I was just mentioning, the mountain, right. It, it's got this weird folky, you know, down homey kind of weird chorus. And then it turns into her sort of soloing mute in and, and, I'm telling you, even if I didn't know whose album this was, I could hear that cut and I would think Jamie Branch. That's something. I would just, that's something when you, when as a right. player. Stick to voice, yeah. Yeah, and she's just got it, like both vocals and as a player. Um, and her album has plenty of, you know, editing and treatments, you know, and, but they all seem to be in service of the sonic world, not in service of, like, let's see what we can do to this track. Like, it feels like there's an end result that's being aimed at, not wankery for wankery's sake. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and it still sounds visceral and immediate. I, I'm sure there's some multi-tracking. And she's somebody who, you know, when she first kind of, and it's not been that long since she's been in the public consciousness of, you know, the tiny group of jazz fans. Well, they talked about, you know, she's got some sense of the album tradition from the 70s, you know, a, a, a 40 minute experience that kind of takes you on a journey. And that was more an expected aspect of, say, classic rock than it was your average jazz album, right? You know, not that there haven't been albums with great narrative thrust and that ability to kind of shape that experience. And I, I think the main, the main thing I just say is that she seems incredibly unmediated. She seems to be absolutely 110% bullshit free. She doesn't yeah. seem to be playing at anything. She seems to be just expressing herself with absolute kind of bloody nerve ended immediacy. You know, there's, there's, there's no filter and maybe there should have been. I still don't know. Not that I've been researching it or something. I just don't run across what exactly caused her death before she turned 40, whether it was drugs, whether it was a heart attack. She was very overweight, whether it was suicide, whether I don't know. And I guess it's, you know, probably none of my business ultimately. I did, and I talked about this when I saw her a couple of years back at the Jazz Fest. She kind of, it was a little bit awkward because she was trying to replicate the first album live, which is a little tricky to do. And also, she just seemed a little bit flustered. There was an awful lot of F-bombs, and, you know, we're not against F-bombs on this podcast, but it was a little bit awkward live in front of a mixed group of people, you know, summertime in, in Chicago. It just kind of, it just, you know, and you just felt like, you know, she was going to be 110% herself and she wasn't necessarily comfortable with even being in a kind of easygoing, 
uh, I wouldn't say very demanding or uptight public. You know, it was just kind of, it was, seemed hard on her. So yeah, this record, it just seems like it's grabbing you by the throat. The rhythms are incredible. The drive of it's incredible. You know, when she's chanting and singing, she's not like the world's great vocalist or something, but you know, it is the opposite of autotune, right? It seems like yeah, this is, she is saying this because she has to say it. She needs to say it. She doesn't give a fuck if you like what she's saying. She's just doing it, you know, and, and yeah. it's on the mic, but it seems like it could be happening in your living room. It's that immediate. You know, I mean, those are, there's some elements of chance and, you know, obviously this has got some populist elements in it. There's a fair amount of jazz and it also just is not prettified. It's not, you know, uh, there's no studio gloss on it. There may be some studio manipulation, but it's not for the purpose of, you know, making it, uh, acceptable to a wide audience or whatever. And yeah, she's got incredibly compelling ideas that just stick with you. You know, nothing in music, in presentation, in improvisational sense, in tone, nothing like Miles Davis, but that ability to express herself through a horn and have a fingerprint the way he and very few other trumpet players did, uh, while being utterly different from him in every possible way, you know? I, but, but yeah. you know, just that gift that he had that, you know, his one superpower that made him so incredibly influential where, you know, as a trumpet player, as we said many times on this podcast, he was no Freddie Hubbard. You know, he was, you know, he was no Charles Tolliver. He was no, you know, but that, that didn't matter to listeners. What mattered is he could make it sound like he was talking to you through the horn. And she definitely has that gift. I think this is a really, really strong record. I, I was wanting to and did not go back and listen to the other fly and die albums. At some point I wanted to sit down and say, what has stayed the same? What changed? Do I feel like she was progressing? I mean, I quite liked the first one as well. You know, I don't know that I was, you know, this is a less shocking or different because we've heard three of them now, but yeah, I mean, I've always felt like she just clearly had it, had this voice, but it is, it's so different in that it, for me, at least it's using elements of, Basic melody, basic, it's not, she's not trying to be fancy harmonically. I mean, there's not lots of, you know, fancy chords and fancy, you know, but she's using these folk elements that I find extraordinarily accessible and extraordinarily just, I'm there. I've got it. It doesn't ever seem condescending. It doesn't seem simplified. It doesn't seem popified. It doesn't seem like it's been, it's got a sheen to it. There's no fucking auto tune on it, but it, it does seem folksy in a way. It just seems like she's just, I mean, she's not trying to like overcomplicate or overthink what she's doing. You don't have to have a PhD to kind of make out what this record's about. You know, it's not fancy jazz. But I do feel like it is jazz, and I think it's great. So, you know, I mean, she, Homer, she's a Chicago man. She can play. I mean, she oh, just yeah. flat out can play. I mean, she's a hell of a trumpet player. I felt like uh, on some of the songs, Burning Gray and uh, Take Over the World, it was almost like the rhythm section had sort of picked up or was channeling, like, 
indigenous forms of kind of drumming or rhythmic because the, the lyrics also contribute to this on both those songs are songs about, you know, yeah. take it back, take it back, 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 back. And there's something just kind of pulsive about, about those songs. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to kind of put a, put my finger on it, except to say that I like the shit out of this. I feel like the, the band is cooking. I really like the, the rhythm section boiling underneath the vocals here and uh, yeah, there's there's just a kind of rawness and urgency about her, a kind of unfiltered self-presentation that is really compelling. It's it's hard to explain. It's not humorless, but it's not jokey. It's just I've got this raw truth to get out, it's, and I'm going to get human, it. Right, and I, I think yeah, there might be a little yeah, it, it's not self-serious. I guess is a way of putting it. I, I don't think it's. Yeah, it's not jokey or funny, but it's not any way, shape, or form pretentious. I'm glad you brought up the band. I mean, Lester, Jason, Chad, they're doing great work. They are yeah. helping propel this unit. They are a symbiotic organism here. It's, it's easy to kind of focus on her, especially because she's gone now, and it kind of yeah. sucks. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's a great group. You know, that's, it's her fly-or-die group. And, yeah, pretty much everything she's touched, I've I've enjoyed to one degree or another, and... This is a strong entry. I, I My understanding is it was assembled posthumously. I don't have access to the physical media, and I'm not, you know... They, they do cite the other band members as liner notes, so presumably they included some reflections there that I have not personally seen, and that, um, you know, I'm sure are kind of fascinating and probably moving as well. But yeah, I think it's a great record. Highly recommended it. By far my favorite of these three off the top 10 yeah. list. Yeah. So yeah, of, of the three on the top 10 list, this is my favorite so far. Zoe is a strong second and, uh, Cass, a fine player, just not my cup of tea. And so our, our our last album here is not part of that top ten list. Lafayette Gilchrist, Christ, I want to say Gilchrist, which is, was born in 1967. <laughs> Gilchrist. Um, so he is a little bit older than the other musicians, other leaders here. And uh, he's a pianist, uh, described as an old soul at ease in the modern world. And he's got a decent-sized jazz ensemble with drummer Eric Kennedy, basic bassist Herman Burney. Tenorist Brian Settles, trombonist Christian Hazan, and percussionist Kevin Pinder. And his album's called Undaunted, and it came out on Morpheus Records last year. And I wasn't, I, I wasn't quite sure what you'd make of this one. I, I, my feelings about it kind of have largely been positive, but it's been a little bit hard to pull into focus. What do you think of Undaunted and Lafayette Gilchrist? I, I enjoy this. So I don't want to put this. It's probably the most traditional of the four albums we we are looking at this week like if you if you just put the four of these albums on and listen to them in order this is the one that you're going to say reminds you most of whatever people think of when they think of jazz right capital j jazz kind of thing yeah 
Yeah, capital J Jazz. And so for me, I like it probably as much as I like Zoe's album. Although I will say Zoe's album, Zoe's, what she's up to is more compelling to me than what Lafayette and Gilchrist is up to here. I don't dislike this. I'm not dissing this. It's very fine. It's really good. It's just, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I've heard this album before. I've heard albums like this before. That sounds really shitty. And I don't mean it to sound shitty. I just mean that it doesn't have, it's not raw the way Jimmy Branch is. Um, it doesn't have the same urgency that the Jimmy right. Branch. Yeah. Does. I mean, one of my notes is the whole thing might tick just a little slow. It's like if every one of the songs was like 10 beats per minute faster, it might have taken off a little more. I mean, I like it. I, I, and I, I kind of pulled it because I thought it was, and I do believe it's interesting, but yeah, yeah. It, it's a laid back album. He's pushing 60 like we are, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's so it's got that going for it. It's probably, you know, as good as Zoe's album. It's just that what Zoe is doing is more interesting to me. And I'd rather uh, hear a lot more of that than this. I don't dislike this. And whenever it came out, I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. I like this. But it felt more in the pocket, more, you know, just accessible. Yeah. And, and that's, I'm dissing it. And I'm not. It's just, so did you have a you comp know. for this guy? Because I came up with one, and it's an unusual okay. comp. Maybe it'll help me out here. So this may be the first guy I've listened to that kind of reminds me of Horace Tapscott. Uh-huh. Not in, in his more avant-garde phase and not leading the giant band or whatever, but the small group on – not real small, but you know, five quintet, sextet albums. He led towards you know his little brief moment in, in the major label, or that's not even right. His brief moment in albums that he made that anyone on earth living had heard of, you know, he's a kind of, it's kind of a modal thing. He's, he's kind of into vamps. Yeah. And, you know, he is not, and really none of the players are trying to like bowl you over with virtuosity. It's not that they aren't good players, but it's just kind of like, as you said, in the pocket, mostly modal stuff. I thought he had a pretty good ear for his heads, you know, that they were a little bit more interesting than average. And, you know, sometimes the bongos would come in. I'm like, yeah, that's just that extra little touch that kind of propels things along. But, yeah, it it is a a little bit recessed album. It's a little bit laid back. I I don't think it suffers from, like, the 90s jazz gloss where everything just seems like it's behind glass. But it's not by any means as as kind of unprocessed and vivid as, as, you know, um, Zoe on the one hand or Jamie on the other, right? It's just not, not that immediate. I don't know. I mean, it, I, I liked it and it, you know, when I first heard it, I'm like, okay, I honestly, I mean, I, I didn't think I've never heard this before. What I felt was I don't hear this very often. You know, I don't hear someone uh, that I would think lightly is speaking. And I'm not sure if this guy's even heard him, but sort of roughly is the school of Tapscott. I don't feel like that particular vibe, maybe slightly ramshackle, uh, as I said, kind of modal, a little bit laid back, but good tunes. Uh, everybody getting the work done. You know, I, I don't, 
I'm not sure that quite that particular little subsection of, of hard bop is something I run into as often as I'd like, I guess. So, you know, but yeah, I'd agree with you. This is not, it's not a throat grabber. And, you know, it could maybe just be a little bit more punchy. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, yeah, I, I liked a lot. I want to single out the, the saxophone player. I, I, I like, I like what he gets up to here. And I like Lafayette as well. Much of much of his time he's been comping behind the horn player, but then when he gets out in solos, it's like, oh yeah, this guy's got some he's got some moves. It's, um, your your take about it needing to be or you know could have been ten beats fast or whatever. It does have that sort of medium slow, medium tempo feel pretty much all the way through. I, I just kept jotting down. I don't know if he's from New Orleans, but I kept I felt like this was kind of that kind of New Orleans laid back Dr. John funky feel yeah, and some maybe play. a little bit of that vibe there. Yeah, I hadn't yeah, let me see here. I think the note should tell us, shouldn't they? Let's see. You keep going. So it has this kind of it, it has a kind of rim and kind of a ramshackle shambolic feel, although it's everyone can play really well. So it, it does create a kind of mood and it does create a kind of sound world that is consistent. And whenever one of these songs came on, I immediately knew, oh, this is Lafayette. And, and I, and I like what he's doing. Um, I just, I don't know. Maybe I need to listen to some more of his stuff. Here's some more of his leader dates. Um, it had that, it just had that kind of somewhat funky offbeat feel to it. I just kept thinking New Orleans and I have no idea if he's from there or whatever. It just, it had that kind of oblique. I don't know. He lived in Baltimore. Yeah, he has a long well, association go. with. It's nothing to do with uh, New Orleans, but anyway, it just has that kind of. There's some. There's some Latin feel on a number of the songs here. Um, there's a kind of bossa take on some of the songs, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I I liked it perfectly well. I, I didn't. I wasn't bowled over by it, but I liked it. I thought it was a solid album. Yeah, and it made me wonder about. You know, he plays a lot with David Murray, and I must have some stuff with him on with him on as a side man. So it did, you know, it certainly served the purpose of making me want to hear more Lafayette Gilchrist. And if, you know, if this is what he does album after album, Hey, that's fine by me. This is, this is interesting and strong. I, I gravitate a little bit more to other stuff, but this was perfectly enjoyable. I, I liked it. I just wasn't blown away by it. And, you know, maybe some of it's just anyone who's on a podcast with Jamie Branch is just not going to have my ears in quite the same way. Jamie kind of grabs you by the throat and Lafayette's not a throat grabber. That's just not, that's not his style, at least on this album. Anyway, he's good. All the, all the sidemen are really good here. Like this is good group and they, they, they gel quite nicely. Uh, it's an enjoyable album and I'm, if you haven't had a chance to hear it, if you like this sort of slower tempo, somewhat funky, oblique stuff, you might really dig him. I don't know. Anyway, you should give him a listen. And I say, you know, another way of putting it more positively is this seems like a guy who's comfortable in his own skin and yep. confident about what he's setting out to do. I mean, there is, 
he knows what he wants to accomplish. I mean, it may or may not kind of set your world on fire, but I don't have any sense of kind of groping or uncertainty or, you know, experimentation for its own sake. It's like, yeah, this guy's got a goal. He's reaching his goal. It's kind of a funky way to get there. Maybe another way of putting it, that's a good way of putting it is, you know, if you don't like it, he probably doesn't care because he's doing what he set out to do. Right, what yeah. he sets out to do for good, you know, and if it's not your sound world, well, then it's not your sound world. I don't, I don't think he's too fussed about that. He knows what he's after and, and he really, he achieves it. Uh, it, like you said, it doesn't feel like there's any grasping at straws here. He, he, he does what he sets out to do really well so and just yeah. a, you know enjoyable album Well, sir, do you have any pop matters today? Pop matters. Let's see. Uh, what have I been listening to? Let me pull it up here super fast. See what's there's always pop in the hopper. Pop in the hopper. That sounds mildly dirty. What pop in the hopper have I got that you haven't heard before? What's um so um yeah I've been uh working through the partner's music storage device and I hit the section where they had a bunch of tunes that someone gave them who was clearly like a nineties bro. You know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> what I mean by that is like the complete works of cake and Weezer and rage against the machine. And, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in that I've been pulling this stuff and listening to it. And some of it I've heard before. So um I don't really have any good pop matters because I'm I'm listening to all this shit from you know fucking Weezer, you know, Pinkerton and and Pressure Chief by Cake. So I don't I don't um, yeah, I don't I don't really have any good pop matters. Nothing really I know Weezer loved. was like huge for people, but I just have never I I think I feel like people have given me a couple of their records. I've never quite figured out what the fuss was about. So I've just I missed all the '90s bro music. I think of it as bro music. It's like Audio Slave and Incubus. Well, Weezer's not quite. I don't think of them as quite that broy. No, I know, but I mean this this person had all of this stuff, so I've been making my way through it, and after a while, it all starts to blur in a haze. And it all feels like uh, a music festival circa 1996 where you're drinking warm beer outside somewhere with a lot of people wearing their baseball caps on backwards. So bro music. The bros listen to different music today. But back in the day, this is what the bros listened to. Okay. You know, this this was the cool bro music. And in with this is like the occasional hippity-hoppity-pop dude you know so jason mraz or jack johnson i mean it is really of its time this set of music and i'm just sort of you know working my way through it i'm you know the stuff that i've been listening to in terms of jazz is way more interesting the pop stuff is just right a crabble nothing nothing worth writing home about um i'm remaking my way through uh the cocteau twins 
oof as a kind of palate cleanser for all this bullshit. Because if there's anything that's the opposite of bro music, it's the Cocteau Twins. So, <laughs> True enough. They true are enough. pure. They are the antidote to that shit. Of all of those bands, I think probably Rage Against the Machine is the one I like the best. And they're a little less bro-y. They're a little more political. And maybe that's why I like them. So uh, just a lot of just a lot of bro shit. So, yeah, those are my pop matters. You have better pop matters. Go ahead. Tell us what you're listening to. Well, they are bro-free and fact this is pop matters fancy costume edition Uh, I'll talk very briefly. I got Joyce the ABBA LP box set a little while ago, and we've gotten through it, everything but the the comeback album from a year or two ago. So I've got to brace myself for that. I'm not sure I want to hear ABBA 30 years past their prime. But, um, man, they did a – given that it was really very inexpensive, given how many records were in it, they did a great job. I mean, it sounds good, no sound problems on any of the pressings, and I'm a little bit more appreciative of the later stuff in the original run that's a little bit more introspective. I mean, ABBA's never going to be that deep, but, you know, there's there's some couple touching moments, you know, as they're all breaking up and things are kind of going south and they're kind of winding down the group. So, yeah, it's just kind of an amazing archive and just really well done, given that it was a kind of, you know, it's not like a budget item exactly, but compared to so many box sets, it was like a third of the cost of Dorothy Ashby's <laughs> harp thing with, you know, twice the number of LPs in it. So, which is what you can do if you're a, you know, multi-million selling act. You, you've got, you know, the, uh, you, you can make a lot more units. But anyway, I was just pleasantly surprised by how well that turned out. Abba wore crazy costumes, but you know who wears crazier costumes? Grace Jones. Lakeisha Benjamin. Oh, yes. Boy, she does. But that's not pop. How dare you? Well, it's concert. So that's the other thing we do in this segment is talk uh, about concerts uh, we've seen. And I got to see Lakeisha Benjamin, who I've decided I'm going to describe her fashion sense as a cross between late Elvis Presley and medium Tutankhamen. <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing. And she's, you know, so anyway, we saw her with a quartet. She was at the Purdue Jazz Festival, which is like a day and a half thing. And so, you know, we come and it's 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 like four degrees out. Joyce is leading me to a building, and it turns out she's just assumed it's one building, it's another one. So I'm, we're just dying. It's so cold. It's like, because the problem with touch phones is you have to be able to touch them. And so it's like, okay, where's the map? <laughs> Try to get it out. And literally, as long as I take my glove off, it's my hand is starting to lose feeling within seconds. But we get there. It, it's in this, you know, building from the 60s, and there's just clouds and clouds of young people wandering around looking lost because they're the jazz festival attendees who are going to go to her workshop the next day and, and are there, you know. And then there's a few old people like us, and they did sell bottled wine, which is great. And so we got to see her show. She had a quartet, and Joyce's take on this was fascinating. One is like, well, she plays too many screechy notes because she does a lot of altissimo work. And the other thing was she wants to be a rock star, but, and then Joyce chuckles, she's a jazz musician. Someone needs to tell her because <laughs> she's like <laughs> – 
you know, running <laughs> around the stage, pumping her fist, talking with the audience. I mean, she's a character. I, I, you know, I didn't know whether she dressed that way to like make up for a retiring personalities. Like, no. Yeah, Lakeisha's ready to take over the world. I mean, there are moments where it was almost getting to be like a rally. And I was getting a little bit uncomfortable because I don't really like people telling me how to feel. But, you know, she was she was amazing. Just endless energy. Blowing the house of saxophone until it's about ready to explode. She did my favorite things and found a different riff for it. So it's like her tribute to Coltrane, but she's like changed the undercarriage of the tune and also throws in footsteps somewhere towards the end. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I mean, she didn't it just like kind of played some of it and then went back to whatever else she was doing. But, you know, those who know, know. And, you know, it was, I guess if you're going to take on Coltrane, you know, you show you're really independent by not imitating what he did and just taking parts of it and then, you know, adding your own crap, which is what she did. She did a little bit, the thing she called the Coltrane Suite, that it was like little bits and pieces from A Love Supreme, but again, reharmonized it a bit and then also threw in, just played bebop in the middle of it, that tune. You know, the band was great. I mean, you know, mainly the pianist was allowed to solo some and the bass player got a couple licks in, the drummer got a couple licks in, but it was like 90 minutes of Lakeisha. You know, I mean, she's... She's just carrying the thing pretty much nonstop. She must have lungs the size of, you know, elephants in there somewhere in her gold lame jumpsuit, which she, you know, kind of gently mocked. I mean, she's both got a messianic streak and an ability to make fun of herself. And apparently something bad happened on their tour in Alabama. I mean, she was like, Jesus Christ, did they try to lynch you? I mean, she kept making these little side jokes about it. Like, I don't know what happened there, but Lakeisha in Alabama did not get along. And I, I honestly, I don't quite. I, I don't know what about her show would have offended them unless they just hated jazz. I mean, you know, then of course he would not like the show. But uh, so it was it was fascinating. I, I think right now I like Lakeisha better in the studio in that she's got this incredible expressivity and directness. And that, you know, doesn't by any means get eliminated in the studio. And sometimes it runs a bit rampant live. I mean, there's times it's like, OK, Lakeisha, if a good cook has tablespoons and teaspoons, right? Because sometimes you need a tablespoon of spice, and sometimes you need a teaspoon or a quarter teaspoon. And right now she's just cooking with tablespoons. There's no, it's like there's no like lower setting. So it kind of got exhausting towards the end. But I, I'm glad I saw her. She was more indifferent than I expected. You know, it was like I said, it was a little bit like um, a revival meeting and a little bit like a concert and. Yeah, I mean, she definitely, she will talk to the audience, and there's some stream of consciousness going on there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, she's a, she's something else. So, like I said, I kind of, I don't know whether another horn's the answer. I mean, it would be nice to have a little more moderate doses of Lakeisha in a given 90 minutes. But if you get a chance, I mean, I would, I don't, don't miss it. She's, she's a trip. She is, you know, if you think those costumes and everything on her albums were over the top, they're just a hint of, of her personality. <laughs> and I, you probably know the story where like she was apparently in a car wreck off the road. If a trucker had not seen the smoke, she'd be dead kind of thing. He pulled her out of the wreck. So she's got, I mean, again, I mean, I'm not saying she rose in the dead in three days, but in her mind, maybe she did. Maybe. So anyway, I strongly recommend seeing Lakeisha Benjamin if you can. Uh, I also strongly recommend having uh, a decent bottle of red wine available at that time. 
All right. That's my report. And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 284. As always, you can reach us at Mike at jazzbastard.com or Pat at jazzbastard.com. You can drop me a line on Facebook or look me up on All About Jazz. You can download the podcast from www.jazzbastard.com, from Stitcher, from Apple Podcasts, from Spotify, from places like that. Tune in next time as we'll continue our series of podcasts on the New York Times Top 10 Jazz Albums of 2023. We're going to be talking about artists such as Angie, Myra Melford, Ambrose Akimuzuri, and Chief Ajuda, or the artist formerly known as Christian Scott. Until next time, take care. Next time we get together, I will have the pop matters or the concert matters of all time to uh, discuss. Because before the next podcast, I will have I will no longer be a Brad Meldow virgin. I will have seen Brad live. Haven't you seen him before? Am I? You haven't never seen. Maybe I remember you talking about planning to go see him. That's all I can figure out. Yes. And uh, we're going to go see him at uh, the La Jolla Music Society, which means it'll be us and about 50 other people in a small room, small book lined room, uh, which I can't think of a better way to see Brad Meldow. It would be like up close and personal. My only question is, should I bring my Brad Meldow pillow and have him sign it? You absolutely should, dude. He's got to know about this pillow. He cannot die not knowing that someone has a body pillow of him. There's just no way. <laughs> his life would not Melba. be a life well lived. He's probably just going to be like, his next album will be called My Body Pillow. You know, let's be. Uh, uh, Jen wants me to bring the body pillow. I, I, I don't I don't think I should. If Only because, you know, what would what would your reaction be if someone came up to you with a a body pillow with with you. Mike. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying you must. <laughs> There's a difference there. I think Brad is exactly the kind of guy that needs to find out that someone has a body pillow of him. Most musicians, yeah. uh, you know, Lakeisha's like probably to say, of course, you know, of course you do. But I, I think for Brad, he he he, that'd be good for him. Well, the only reason to do it is I would really like to to talk to him and what better icebreaker than a body pillow with with your face with your face on it like, i don't even know what i would say to brad maldo if i met him the entirety and, of your interview will be security security yeah she says i should go up to him and invite him on the podcast and i'm like we're not between the two of us we don't have enough iq points to talk to brad maldo you know combined so I, I think uh, yeah. we do fine. I don't think he'd ever want to talk to us, but I, oh, I think he, I think he would think that we were idiots. Well, I think he thinks <laughs> about all human humankind, so yeah. that's okay. It's difference between someone thinking it about you and then proving it to them. So anyway, for those who don't know, if you have a, if you're a first time listener or you haven't heard this before, I, I have a massive musical crush on Brad Meldow. He's like, well, I'm gonna. I don't think this part's gonna go on the podcast, but we'll. Uh, 
bad. Okay. No, I mean, it just we'll see. I mean, you just have to tell us what happened. You know, I mean, did I you bring the body to or not? Right now, the idea of even talking to Brad Meldow terrifies me, much less Aww. presenting him with my body pillow and asking him to sign it. You've got to just bring a Sharpie, bring the body pillow. I just bring a like Sharpie, said, the body pillow, and say, I can explain. <laughs> no. Sorry. There is no explanation. I mean, he probably is like, oh, God, that again? I don't know. <laughs> just, oh, yeah, I've signed one of these before. <laughs> dozens of every, Brad Meldoff Every fans. week this happens to me. Some idiot comes up with a body pillow with my name, <laughs> with my image on. To me, what's cool about it is it's got Mad Brad and, and Happy know, Brad or Glad Brad. So really, it's a yin and yang thing. It's, you it know. Is. It's it all, is. it's a, the entirety of the Bradley experience. Yeah, it's yin and yang. So um, that's what's cool about it. It is not. Yeah, it is. It is. That's the cool part about it. So I don't know. I I I have two weeks to agonize over this. I don't know. 